Isaiah chapter 30. We've already looked at verses 1 through 17. I'm going to begin in verse 18, which is really the end of the first thought. It says, therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. And therefore, he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Isaiah opened chapter 30 with a portrait of rebellion against God. The prophet then carefully laid out the results of that rejection. Failure to trust God doesn't make matters better, but it makes matters worse. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter in verse one, it says. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me and who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt. And they have not asked my advice. Remember what we saw. The northern armies of Assyria were threatening to annihilate both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And because they had a political problem, because they had a cultural problem, because they had a geographical problem, they thought they needed a political or a military solution. But God said, you don't understand. I am the God of the universe and I am your God specifically. And you didn't ask me about this. Remember, part of what it means to have a covenant relationship with God means that you walk with him and you talk with him and you ask permission and rebellion against God. We discovered brings shame and humiliation in verses two and three. In Proverbs chapter one, verse seven, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so the Lord warned Judah, don't make the alliance with Egypt. But rather than trust the Lord, the people wanted to hear something different. They wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. They didn't want to hear from the man of God, and they certainly didn't want to hear the word of God. And remember, in verse 10 of this chapter, it says, who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. You see, they wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. We learned that the rebellious are liars. We learned that those who reject God's word reject God himself. Once again, God extends gracious opportunity for mercy, for forgiveness, for rest, for salvation. In verse 15, it says, for thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. But you would not remember he's giving him an opportunity. He's saying, look, you can still turn. It's not too late. It's not too late for you to turn around. Their sin would sentence them. Their rebellion and their rejection would bring God's just punishment. And in this chapter, Isaiah speaks of the devastation that would come because of their rejection and willful disobedience, but then he issues an invitation urging the people to repent and return. And then he explains the benefits of salvation. God will comfort his people. God will hear their prayers in verse 19. He will teach them and guide them in verses 20 and through 22. He will prosper them in verses 23 through 26. He will defeat their enemies in verses 27, 28. When you come to verse 30 and to the end of the chapter, he will fill their hearts with joy. It says in verse 29. So we began with the portrait of rebellion but now we go from rebellion to restoration in verse 18. Therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. And therefore, he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Again, in the context, therefore, becomes the hinge. It becomes the key to understanding the whole chapter. The Lord has been warning about judgments and he's been warning about a judgment that would come on a guilty group of people. But he says, but it doesn't have to be that way. 
The Lord also has been speaking of eventual blessings for those who will come to him. Now the Lord promises to wait here when it says, therefore, the Lord will wait. Just pause for just a moment right at that particular passage. And under the word wait, write or put off to the side. Delay. Haven't you ever said about someone that that person deserves to die? That person deserves to go to hell. That person deserves to go to jail. That person deserves and you fill in whatever blank you want. And then say this sentence. I deserve blank. But the Lord says, wait. Wait. I'm going to delay judgment in your life. On September 5th, I'm going to allow you to wake up in the morning and suck air. I'm going to allow you to get up out of your bed. I'm going to allow you to go into your bathroom. Look, the bowel and bladder movement all still works. I'm going to allow you to look into the mirror and I'm going to allow you to have one more day. Therefore, the Lord will wait. The Lord will delay judgment. That he may be gracious to you. And therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. He will delay judgment. He will look for another time to judge. But right now he wants to be gracious. The Lord will be Exalted. The idea is the Lord desires to exercise his restoring mercy and the expression he will be exalted. Listen carefully. It means that he will withdraw himself in order to elevate himself. God will go on high. He will eventually fulfill his purposes in judgment, but he will show mercy. But the time has not yet come. For him to completely judge. Do you understand what's happening here? Israel has hindered its own deliverance and salvation. We're not going to trust the word of God. We're not going to trust the prophet of God. And we're not going to trust the provision of God. And by the way, that becomes a perfect picture of each and every person. Who rejects God and rebels against God. Isn't it? You hinder the work of deliverance and you hinder the work of salvation. But this is the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even though you worked really hard to hinder and delay God's plan and purpose in your life, God is still going to fulfill it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to the earth. He lives the perfect life. He dies on the cross. He rises from the dead. God is going to Effect deliverance and salvation for Israel. God has a plan for for Israel and for Judah. God has a plan for Jerusalem. God wasn't finished with the Jewish people in the 7th century A.D. before the Assyrians were going to come down and destroy the place. God still had a plan. God was still going to bring forth the Messiah. It was a person who was going to have to be born through the Davidic line. A person was going to have to come on the scene, a virgin who would yield to God. And then God was going to bring a savior. He was going to wait. And he was going to be gracious. The Lord was willing to wait. The Lord makes an amazing promise. And this is the point that each and every one of us has to get. The Lord is willing to make this amazing promise to the rebellious who are willing to repent. Have you been disobedient in the past? Have you been rebellious in the past? Have you looked at the Bible? Have you read what the Bible says? Have you heard the message of hope? Have you heard what Jesus wants for you and from you? And you said, forget it. That's not for me. That's not what I want. The Lord still wants to show mercy. Isn't that wild? Haven't you ever heard someone say that? Wait, isn't the God of the Old Testament mean? And Jesus is lovely and accepting. Read it for yourself. Therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. Does that sound ugly? Mean? 
think carefully for just a moment. Mercy is compassion in action. Isaiah reminds us that God is a God of mercy, but God is also a God of justice. He is Jehovah of judgment. Yes, he disciplines us. Yes, he brings chastisement on those who rebel and backslide. But he's also merciful and he is willing to forgive those who will turn to him in humility and repentance. Haven't you ever woken up one morning and said, God's really mad at me. He's upset with me. The things that I've been thinking, the things that I've been saying, the things that I'm doing. And all of your years of training told you that there's a God in heaven and he's waiting to beat you over the head with his big, ugly stick. Which runs contrary to what this says. Therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you and therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. He's elevated himself so that he could have mercy on you. What does it mean to wait on the Lord, by the way? When you come to the end of the verse, for the Lord is the God of justice, blessed are all those who wait for him. I'm going to suggest something to you. Before I told you that like a lady in waiting in the ancient courts of England, the the, the mistress waited for the ladies in waiting to call and then they would respond here. I, I suspect that what it means is that it means to trust him. It means to trust him for salvation. It means to trust him for deliverance. It means to trust him from deliverance from your enemies. And it also means to trust him in the trials of life. My life is miserable. My life is horrible. My life is difficult. My life is whatever it is. You can fill in the blank. It's, a, a, it's been a time of, of emptiness, of measured disobedience, whatever it happens to be. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. God isn't finished with you yet. In Psalm 2, verse 2, the psalmist said, kiss the son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled. But a little blessed are all those who put their trust in him. When you're waiting on the Lord, you're waiting that God's graciousness and that his kindness and his mercy is going to be made manifest in your life in the midst of trial, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of affliction. Wait on him. And verses 18 through 33 are addressed to people whose eyes are wet with weeping. Look at verse 19 for. The people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem, you shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. I want you to think about this. These people have been hurt and weeping. You want to know why? Because the constant threat from Assyria in the north has meant devastation for their family. It's meant destruction for their towns. It's it's meant living in constant fear and insecurity. Have you ever been in that position in your life where you were you were afraid of everything? You were afraid to even get up. You were afraid of what life might have for you. You were afraid you were going to lose your job. You were, going to, you were afraid you were going to lose your husband. You were afraid you were going to lose your wife. You were afraid. You were afraid of whatever. And the constant pressure and the constant pain and the, and the constant weeping and the wailing and the depression. But it says, for the people who shall dwell in, in Zion and Jerusalem, you shall weep no more. He will be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. In verse 19, they're weeping. They're a hurt and wounded people. In verse 26, it says, moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. The reason why it says that is because these people had been in the dark and they had been in pain. They had eaten the bread of adversity. They drunk the, the water of affliction. In verse 20, these are people who have lost sight of God. And it's easy to judge people like that. Well, have you been to church lately? No. Have you opened your Bible lately? No. Have you thought about God lately? Not really. (laughs) 
There are several promises for those who repent and restore. And you know what the number one promise is? It's found right there in verse 19. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. Here is the idea. Yes, you've rebelled. Yes, you've turned. Yes, you've done something wrong. But when God sees you crying. When God sees you in the dark place, in the lonely place, in the desperate place, and you cry out to him. He hears you. And he wants to comfort you. By the way, that is the first blessing of salvation. Comfort. Okay, I'm not going to rebel anymore. I'm not going to resist God anymore. I'm not going to reject God anymore. God, forgive me of my sin. There's an immediate sense of comfort. That's exactly what's happening. Jesus will return. Messiah will establish his kingdom. There will be no weeping, sorrow or grief whatsoever. We weep now, the Bible says, but it's only for a season. There is going to come a time when we weep no more. The Bible promises two things for the believer who will turn from their sin. He will provide comfort in the here and now. But in Revelation chapter 21, verse four, it says this amazing thing. The text says, and God will. Some of you are familiar with it. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. For some of you, those are the current things. For some of you, the current things are wetness of eyes. Loved ones have died. Complete sorrow and total pain. Messiah is going to come. Jesus will come. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The second promise that's at the end of verse 19 is salvation. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. If the first result of turning from your sin and your rebellion is comfort, the second result is he will answer your prayers. Haven't you ever thought, God, are you up there? Can you see my lips moving? Do you understand who I am? Yes, he knows who you are. And he wants to answer your prayer. In Messiah's kingdom, prayers are heard and answered immediately. We still need help. We still need our our prayers answered. Jesus promises to hear and answer prayer in Luke 11, verse nine. It says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find knock and it will be open to you. The person who repents of their rejection and their rebellion, who turn from their sin, God will hear their cries for help. And look what it says in verse 20. And Though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. But your eyes shall see your teachers. The promise for those who repent and return, there will come a time when the people of God will dwell safely. Remember, they're living in constant insecurity, constant fear, constant problems. They'll weep no more. They'll receive complete understanding to prayers in the time of trouble. And look what it says. They will still be given bread and water. Let me ask you a question. What do you think this means? What is the meaning of this verse? And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. Does that mean you're destined for sorrow? Does it mean that you're destined for trouble? Does it mean that you're going to have problem and pain no matter what? It might mean that in part because we know in this world we'll have tribulation. Jesus said that Jesus said to expect persecution. But you know how most people don't read it? 
that there's a provision of God even in the midst of adversity, even in the midst of a parched circumstance, a dry place. Even then, you're still given bread, even though it's the bread of affliction. You're still given water, even though it's the water of adversity. You know the scripture. He whom the Lord loves, he chastens everyone, a son and a daughter. Are these symbols of adversity? Do they represent promises in times of need? Maybe there's an element of both in the passage. I suspect the promise of restoration includes deliverance both from the adversity and the gift of godly teachers when it says, yet your teachers will not be moved into it to a corner anymore. Remember the people who told them the truth, they were they were trying to push them out of the way. Some of the prophets had fled because they were forced to flee for their own safety. And when the prophets are forced to flee, the people lose godly instruction. But in Messiah's kingdom, the godly will no longer have to worry about persecution. They'll have to they don't have to worry about going away. They they don't have to worry. Is there anyone? Is there anyone who will tell me the truth? Is there anyone who will open up God's word? Is there anyone who will tell the truth from the Bible? There might come a, a time when they put me in jail. Just come and visit me from time to time. If I have iced tea and some cookies, I think I will be okay. But in Messiah's kingdom, the godly will no longer be persecuted. They'll no longer be forced to flee. That's part of the promise. The promise is I'm going to put you in a place where you don't have to roam from church to church and from town to town, from bad teaching to bad teaching. The truth is you can open up your Bible and you can get hope. So here, I suspect that the promise is the restoration includes deliverance from adversity and the gift of godly teachers. And, and again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, some of you are familiar with the passage where Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You know what? Those those are the words of a person who's faced persecution. Affliction. Pain. Punishment. And the threat of death. By the way. If you get beat up every day. And if your life gets threatened every day. It can have an effect on your friendship and fellowship with God. Sometimes we forget that there are people who suffer enormous pain. Enormous depression. They're suffering, struggling financially. They're suffering, struggling emotionally. They're suffering and they're struggling in their relationship. But there will come a time. There will come a time. When you will experience freedom. And look what it says in verse 21. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. In verse 21, we find another promise for those who turn from rebellion, for those who turn to repentance. This is part of the process of restoration. When you have a right relationship with God and friendship with God, you can expect God's presence and God's guidance. God will tell you he will speak to you. You're walking along life's dramatic road and you hear the voice whisper in your ear. Go to the left. You hear the voice, go to the right. Because you have repented, because you've been restored, God wants to speak to you. This is an obvious reference to the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Certainly in Messiah's kingdom, we'll hear the voice of God. In Messiah's kingdom, we'll hear the Spirit of God. 
when the wicked are removed, we'll have less hindrance in hearing the word of God. But for every believer today, every believer, every born again Christian, every person who's trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior can have confidence that God is willing and able to speak to them. Remember, Jesus said, if I go, I'm going to send a comforter and he will be with you and he will be in you. The Holy Spirit wants to speak to you. This is the way. Walk in it. You know what? I can't think of a single time in my life since I've become a Christian. Not even one single time. When I was walking down a particular road. And the Lord said, don't go down that road. He warned me. That's not good for you. That's not a direction you should go. That's not a friendship you should enter into. That's not a relationship. That doesn't look good. That doesn't look right. This is this is not right. This is wrong. Don't go down that way. And I go, oh, that's not really the Lord. But it was the Lord. <laughs> even in this fallen world, even in this corrupt world. We can hear the voice of God if we're willing to listen. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 13? However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you of things to come. You have the promise of a real Holy Spirit speaking to you. And look what it says in verse 22. You will also defile the covering of your images of silver and the ornament of your molded images of gold. You will throw them away as an unclean thing. You will say to them, get away. You know, what he's talking about idols. It's the seventh century B.C. They have little golden statues. They have little silver statues. We may not have anything so crass as a golden statue or or a silver statue. But here's part of the promise for the people who repent and for the people who are restored. This is, again, part of the portrait of restoration. The people who have truly repented, those who have turned from their sin, they're willing to purge themselves of their idols. You know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, you're willing to hear from God, you're willing to turn from your idolatry. And remember what an idol is. It's anything that you place in front of you that's more important to you than God. And for many of you, it isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing that you idolize. Your husband. Your wife. Your children. Your ministry. Your job. It's anything that you put in front of your friendship and fellowship with God, your relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's even the good things. Most of us, it isn't pornography. Most of us, it isn't some bad relationship. For most of us, it isn't some sinful circumstance. For, for most of us, it isn't some, some overwhelming addiction. For, some of us, it, it, for, for most of us, it isn't some terrible disease. But it's anything, it's anything, it's anything that we're willing to put before we place God at the first and the foremost of our life. But with genuine repentance comes an abandonment to idolatry. And when Isaiah says, you will say to them, get away, he is in effect saying, guess what? For the people who, who turn from rebellion and, and who repent and do, who turn to the Lord, they get sick of their idolatry. They get sick of the materialism. They get sick of how many cars can I have? How many watches can I own? How many nations can I visit? How many beers can I drink? How many things can I have before I'll finally say I have enough? All idols, false gods are purged from our minds and purged from our hearts. And there's only one Lord, the true and the living God, Yahweh. He is worshipped. And again, the picture is 
torn away as you see the Messiah in his future kingdom and every false God and every false idol and every pretender to the throne is cast down. We sang about it at worship. I will lay down my idols and the thrones that I have made and all that has taken my heart. Judah was sinking in the sea of idolatry. But in the coming days, they would see just how foolish it was. But there was nothing worth forsaking the true and the living God. There was no drug. There was no friendship. There was no relationship. There was no single thing that was more important than to have a right relationship with God. The children of Israel would cast down their idols. They would find joy in the Lord. They would drink the living water. They would eat the bread that came down from heaven. They would experience what it was like to have a right relationship with God through Christ. And look what it says in verse 23. Then he will give the rain for your seed with which you sow the ground and bread of the increase of the earth. It will be fat and plentiful in that day. Your cattle will feed in large pastures in that that day, remember, he's talking about the day of the Lord in the day of judgment and in the day of Messiah. And we might even begin to think in the day of repentance, as we turn from our rebellion and we embrace all that God has for us, guess what? Prosperity returns. It's like a bad country western song. My dog died. My wife left me. This has happened. This has happened. And this has happened. And guess what? When you repent and you return, all of the bad things start to go back into reverse. Well, does that mean necessarily that every bad thing that has ever been done, that it will just all of a sudden show up and it'll be sunshine and roses? Not necessarily. But it will mean this. There's going to be a sense of prosperity and rightness and particularly in the messianic kingdom. Look what it says in verse 24. Likewise, the oxen and the young donkeys that work the ground will eat cured fodder. That's a a type of a, a meal that's mixed with salt which has been winnowed with the shovel and fan. Verse 25, there will be on every high mountain and on every high hill rivers and streams of waters. In the day of the great slaughter. When the towers fall, what? That's odd. Why is that in the middle of this picture of a messianic kingdom with a restoration of prosperity? Godly, biblical prosperity is another promise in Messiah's kingdom. When Messiah comes, here's what he's in effect saying. There'll be enough water. There'll be enough food. There'll be jobs for everyone. Everyone will have something to do. This is different from the modern prosperity gospel. In the modern prosperity gospel, it talks about healing on demand. It talks about health on demand and wealth on on demand. Prosperity, biblical prosperity, is different, I think, from the modern gospel of prosperity. The reason? The Bible doesn't promise healing on demand. The Bible doesn't promise prosperity on demand. Matter of fact, the Bible says exactly the opposite, that a person who seeks to be rich pierces himself through with all kinds of, of evil things. And the Bible even basically says this, that the love of money is a root of every kind of evil. Well, does that mean that there can't be Hard work and a provision made? Well, there can be. In this present evil world, believers do experience adversity. We do experience affliction. We do experience from time to time financial destitution. But in the coming day of Messiah's kingdom, there will be a provision for everyone. So what does the great day of slaughter refer to? Is this the day of Armageddon? Is this the day when Messiah comes and he exercises complete judgment on the wicked nations? Is this 
a, a, a picture, a type of a world in which Jesus, the Messiah, comes back. And like it says in the book of in the Gospel of Matthew, he separates the goats and the sheep and the erring nations. I suspect that it is. In this day, when the Messiah comes, he will exercise complete judgment and judgment of the wicked will give Jesus Christ the opportunity to reign unopposed in his just kingdom. And in verse 26, it says, moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day that the Lord binds up the bruise of his people and heals the stroke of their wound. And I would add a wound that he inflicted. It's one thing when your mom and dad spanks you. And it's another thing when they bring in the ice pack. Here we have another promise in Messiah's kingdom. A light greater than the sun. Look what it says. Both the sun and the moon will shine brighter than ever before. You think this is literal? I suspect it might be. I suspect that this gives us a clue of what might be in store for the future of the earth. Even astronomers and global scientists tell us that the sun will get brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. Is global warming a reality? Uh, yeah. The issue isn't whether or not the earth is going to get warmer. The issue is what's causing it. There seems to be a picture that's kind of interesting. That the splendor and the brilliance of the Messiah's return becomes a sort of ultimate source of light. There's a clue that's given to us in Revelation chapter 22, verse five. It says there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 20, there's another clue that's given a little bit later on in Isaiah's book. It says, your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and the days of your mourning shall end. Whatever else it means, if, is this a real geologic phenomenon? Is it a real astronomical phenomenon? Is it a real physiological phenomenon? I suspect that it is, but I suspect that it means that and more. I suspect it becomes a metaphor for when we use the expression, the light came on. Have you ever used that expression? Oh, the light just went on. I was in the dark and then the light went on. In Messiah's kingdom, the lights go on. But again, it becomes a type and a picture of restoration from those who turn from their sin and their rebellion, who embrace the Lord. The lights go on. When you turn from your sin and you turn to the Savior and you open up the Bible, guess what? You read the Bible, and you go, this makes no sense to me. But when you receive Christ as your Savior, you read the Bible and you go, this seems to make sense to me. Do you remember when you got saved? Did you ever say to someone, this is in the Bible? How come nobody told me that this is in the Bible? The lights go on. In Messiah's kingdom, there's healing and there's health. Most people in Isaiah's day suffered unbearable hardship. In Isaiah's day, they suffered unbelievable poverty. Incredible disease. Most of you will never understand what it means to live every day in the hospital. And the days become weeks and the weeks become months. And you start to get the perspective that the whole world is sick because that's all that you see. But in Messiah's kingdom... There's no HMO. There's no universal health plan. You never have to worry about the money running out. Jesus heals our wounds and diseases. 
But even now, in this present evil world, Jesus promises to heal and strengthen his people. God gives anointed men and women and gifted men and women. God himself supernaturally, for whatever reason that only is known to him from time to time, he supernaturally intervenes in the affairs of human beings and he heals them. Remember in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, when Jesus was beginning his ministry, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news, the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I don't think it's a mistake that he picked Isaiah to begin his preaching ministry. Because Isaiah's ministry is our sneak preview into Messiah's kingdom. You ever go to the show and you actually wind up liking the previews more than the movie? Because it's a dud. But you see the previews and you go, ooh, that looks kind of cool. Ooh, that looks kind of cool. Ooh, that looks kind of cool. That's what Isaiah does. He, he gives us a sneak preview into, into Messiah's kingdom. And then we go from restoration to retribution. Look what it says in verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger. And his burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation and his tongue like a devouring fire. I think it's interesting that in verse 27 it says, behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar. It doesn't say the Lord. It says the name. I think that that's interesting. Because I suspect again that this is a reference to the return of the Messiah. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar. Remember, it is the name which is above every name. This is the name where where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. And, And it says it comes from afar, burning with his anger and his burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation and his tongue like a devouring fire. I think it is a picture that is given to us and reiterated in the book of Revelation. How far is he coming? He's coming as far as heaven. Remember, the Bible says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. In in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the trumpet of God. Jesus is coming back. And it's not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. His burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation. I suspect that Jesus' lips looked more like Elvis Presley's, or just quivering. And why is it quivering? Because the cup of his indignation is going to be full in the not too distant future. And look what it says in verse 28. His breath is like an overflowing stream which reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of futility. And there shall be a bridle in the jaws of the people causing them to err. This is a picture of a world in chaos of nations that stand against God. And the Messiah will simply speak words of judgment. And it is the voice of Jesus and the words of the Messiah that will be like an overwhelming stream. And in verse 29, it says, you shall have a song as in the night when a holy festival is kept and gladness of heart as when one goes with a flute to come into the mountain of the Lord to the mighty one of Israel. In verse 30, the Lord will cause his glorious voice to be heard and show the descent of his arm with the indignation of his anger and the flame of a devouring fire with scattering tempests and hailstones. He's giving a mini picture of what's written about in the book of Revelation. Jesus comes. There is amazing cosmological phenomenon. The Lord demonstrates his awesome power. The, the Lord demonstrates his incredible justice. Verse 31 for the. For through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down as he strikes with the rod. I think we're back. This is the threat that's coming from the north. 
And it says, for through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down. God will supernaturally intervene and destroy Assyria as he strikes with the rod. That's what you use. It's an instrument to beat someone. It was an iron stick, if you will. And in verse 32, the Lord promises to demonstrate his awesome power through the sheer might of his voice. God's justice would bring great joy and great rejoicing among the people. But you can imagine it brings fear and terror to the enemies of God. And in verse 32, it says, and in every place where the staff of punishment passes, which the Lord lays on him, it will be with tambourines and harps. And in battles of brandishing, he will fight with it. There's another promise in Messiah's kingdom. It's a blessing for some. It's a curse for others. Messiah's enemies will be done away with. There will be complete victory over those who rebel against the Lord and persecute his people. And then you see this enigmatic verse right at the end for Tophet was established of old. Yes, for the king it is prepared. He has made it deep and large. Its pyre is fire with much wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, kindles it. What in the world does that mean? Let's see if we can make sense. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this is where I earn my paycheck. Are you ready? In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, Peter writes and he says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Whatever it means, it means something. And I suspect that the king is the apostate nation, a future ruler in the Middle East, when it says, for Tophet was established of old, yes, for the king it is prepared. From a historical standpoint, the historical context seems to indicate the king of Assyria. But I suspect there's another king, a future king, that's also intimated this apostate nation, this future nation where the Antichrist arrives. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, it says, Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. I suspect that this is a King during the time of the tribulation, the time that the Bible refers to as the time of Jacob's sorrow. And this king is given many titles in the Bible. He's called the man of sin. He's called the lawless one in Second Thessalonians. He's called the beast who speaks like a lamb or who who looks like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon in Revelation chapter 13. Why do I think that? Because in ancient times, Tophet, when it says For Tophet was established of old. Tophet was the lowest part of the valley of the son of Hinnom. In Jerusalem, there are two valleys, Kidron and Hinnom. And in the Hinnom Valley, at the lowest, lowest part of the valley called Gehenna, in the ancient world, it was called Tophet. This is the place where the trash was burnt. This is the place where the refuse was sent. This was a landfill. This was a dump. This was the place where every filthy, rotten, unclean thing was burnt. This is the place where the animals were dumped. This is the place when you had criminals who died. Remember, they don't have a prison system and they don't have a pauper's field. They drug them to this place and then they burned them. In the days of Israel's worst idolatry, this is the place where they established the altars of Molech. This is the place where human sacrifice was made. This was the place where babies were burnt and young maidens were offered to filthy false gods. They were offered alive on the red hot monstrous arms of a furnace. It was made of brass in the form of their wicked God. And they would heat it till it turned red and then they would take their babies. Babies, and then they would place the babies on the raging furnace and burn them alive. And the priests of Molech would beat their drums and then they would chant their sinister songs of praise to demons. 
to drown out the screams of the children and the screams of their victims. God saw all of it. Every wicked thing. He saw every wicked thing. Every wicked and terrible thing that was ever done to you. Every pain. Every heartache. Every molestation. Every abuse. Every beating. Every horrible thing. He saw the destruction in Rwanda. He saw the genocide in Somalia, in Ethiopia. He was completely aware of every single Jew who was put in every single cattle cart, who went to every single oven and who was burned. He saw it all. And it was the synonym for the lowest hell. The place of outer darkness. The place where the enemies of God would be cast. On the day of judgment. And it says that the breath of the Lord. Like a stream of brimstone. Kindles it. In Isaiah 66, 24, he gives another hint. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die and their fire has not quenched. And they, they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Isaiah closes the chapter with a whisper of judgment. And with the whisper of blessing. Blessings for those who repent. But judgment for those who won't repent, for those who continue in, in rejection and rebellion. We live in a, in a world where we don't want to talk about hell. We might whisper about it around the coffee table. We might talk about it with someone that we know. We, but we don't want to talk about it. But hell was a place that was created for the devil and his angels. It was never meant for you. It was never meant for you. It's described as a place of unquenchable fire in Matthew 3.12. It's a place of memory and remorse in Luke chapter 19. It's a place where there's thirst. It's a place where there's misery and pain. There's a, it's a place of frustration and anger. It's a place of separation. It was originally, like I said, prepared for Satan and his hosts in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. It will be a place that will be created for all eternity. Is this place real? I'm telling you, it's as real as heaven. The punishment of the wicked in hell is as never ending as the bliss of the righteous in heaven. Just like there is joy in Messiah's kingdom. There's sorrow. Apart from his kingdom. One of the most terrifying questions I always get on my radio program has to deal with the subject of hell. How can a good God send people to hell forever? He is good. And he is just. And he never lies. When he told Adam and Eve in the garden, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. He meant it. But when he said, but if you'll turn to me, if you'll repent of your sin, if you'll trust the Messiah as your Lord and your Savior, the judgment that was intended for you, I will place on him. If you trust him and believe him and love him, then I'll forgive you. And you'll experience joy and friendship and restoration with God. 
The punishment of the wicked dead in hell is described throughout Scripture as everlasting fire in Matthew 25, unquenchable fire in Matthew 3.12, shame and everlasting contempt in Daniel 12.2, a place where the worm doesn't die and the fire isn't quenched in Mark 9, the torments and flame in Luke 16.23, everlasting destruction in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, a place of torment with fire and brimstone where the smoke of their torment ascends forever. Ever and ever in Revelation 14.10. You know what? I can't make that go away. I can't pretend like it's not really there. Yes, hell is very real. And someone once asked me, why is it that way? And I used the illustration of a picnic. I said, imagine we were at your house. It's a family barbecue and all of your family is there and all of your friends are there. And you have small children and a reptile, a snake, a poisonous snake comes and bites the baby. Where I grew up in the Mojave Desert, we have a a rattlesnake called the Mojave Green. And only the smallest amount of poison from a Mojave Green will cause a child to swell up and die immediately. And I ask the question, what would you do to the snake? Kill it. Why? Don't you watch Animal Planet? I would kill the snake because the snake is a threat to the other children who are there. Guess what? Sin remains a threat in a universe where rebellion and resistance to God takes place. God will isolate Satan. And his rebellious angels forever and ever so that no one will ever have to be intoxicated, stung, bit ever again. Every single person who makes what I call the horrible choice has to come to grips with the fact that God is gracious and merciful, but he is also just. God will punish sin. He punished sin in the person of Jesus. And there is escape. You know what I've discovered? No one comes to Jesus or hardly anybody comes to Jesus because of the threat of hell. Most people come to Jesus because of the opportunity. The possibility. That they could know and experience the love of God in Jesus. And that's true. He is merciful and gracious and willing to love. We're going to have communion. I'm going to ask you all to hold the communion elements until we all have an opportunity to partake together. But before we have communion, I want to take just a little bit of time and just pray and give you an opportunity to examine your hearts. Heavenly Father, as the worship team is coming up, Lord, I pray for every person who is here. Lord, we know that most people believe that heaven is real. We know that most people believe that hell is not real. But Lord, we know that no one had more to say about hell than Jesus. And I suspect that he knew Isaiah chapter 30. Lord, I pray even now for the person who has found themselves in a situation far from you in rejection and rebellion. That, Lord, you've been gracious. You've waited for them for so long. You've tapped on the door of their heart many times. You've extended the offer of friendship and fellowship. You've offered to forgive sin over and over and over again. And they said, no, not now, not ever. But Lord, I pray that they'll change their mind. Lord, I pray that your gracious mercy and your kindness would overwhelm them. And the possibility of love would 
embrace them. And the possibility of forgiveness of sin would overwhelm them. And that they would come to you. Honestly, fully, finally, and completely. Is that you? Do you need to have a right relationship with God and you don't? You can. Just acknowledge your sin. Remember what we've already learned in the book of Isaiah. He is gracious and merciful. He's willing to forgive you if you're willing to turn to Him. Won't you do it? Why wouldn't you? Just come to Him now. Experience His love and forgiveness. Invite Jesus into your heart. Confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you. He'll have mercy on you and He'll forgive you and He'll give you the promise of eternal life. He'll raise you from the dead and He'll place you in Messiah's kingdom. You will spend eternity somewhere. I guarantee it. Won't you come to Christ? If you need to come to Jesus, just slip up your hand and I'll pray for you. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? Many of you. Praise the Lord. Lord, for those who have raised their hand, Lord, again, I pray that you saw their willingness. Lord, you don't just meet them halfway. You cross the universe in order to come to that place. You see the cry and the circumstance of their life and you know their, their life. Lord, I pray that you'd come into their life. Lord, I pray, I pray that you would write their name in the Lamb's book of life and, and that they would experience overwhelming joy in the knowledge that you love them and care about them and you're willing to walk with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Obviously, for those of you who raise your hand and you receive the Lord, you're more than welcome to join us in communion. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that in just a moment. Now we're going to worship the Lord. Go ahead.